I'm Carolyn Best, Director of Arts and Letters Live at the Dallas Museum of Art, and I'm delighted to bring our virtual stage to your sofa tonight as we feature award-winning author Layla Lalami in conversation with Jim Falk. The theme of immigration that's front and center, both in Lalami's fiction and nonfiction, resonates strongly with the Migration Exhibition currently on view through the end of October 2021 in the DMA's Center for Creative Connections. You can take a virtual reality tour of the exhibition on our website, and I encourage you to spend time with it and see it on your next visit to the museum. Inspired by the diversity of Dallas, the exhibition traces the migration of people, objects, and ideas in art across time and across cultures. Leila Lalami was born and raised in Morocco, a place whose past and present permeate her writing. A novelist, short story writer, and essayist, Lalami is a unique and a confident voice in the conversations around race and immigration that increasingly occupy our national attention. She's also a regular contributor to publications including the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times Magazine, and The Nation, where she's a monthly columnist. Lalami received a PhD in linguistics and currently teaches creative writing at the University of California at Riverside. She's been awarded Fulbright, Guggenheim, and Lannan Foundation fellowships for the body of her work. Lalami's novel, The Moore's Account, was a finalist for the 2015 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and was long listed for the Man Booker Prize. And it imagines the life of the first non-native person of color to explore America a voice entirely absent from our history books. Salman Rushdie praised the Moore's account as absorbing and brilliantly imagined fiction. Her most recent novel, The Other Americans, is about the suspicious death of a Moroccan immigrant in a small California town. It is at once a family saga, a murder mystery, and love story infused with questions about discrimination. Hailed as a powerful novel of intolerance and compassion, resilience and weakness, love and loss by The Economist, the book was a finalist for the National Book Award for Fiction, the Kirkus Prize for Fiction, and it won the Samson Family Literary Prize. Her latest book, and really the focus of tonight's conversation, is Conditional Citizens, a nonfiction book about belonging in America. Written from her own perspective as a woman, an Arab, and a Muslim, and using her own journey from Moroccan immigrant to U.S. citizen as a starting point, Lalami explores the rights, liberties, and protections that are traditionally associated with American citizenship. Conditional citizens, she argues, are all the people whom America embraces with one arm and pushes away with the other. Reading this book was an eye-opening and a thought-provoking experience for me, and I'm confident that it will be for you too. Author Viet Thanh Nguyen says, her book is a gift to all Americans, if they are willing to receive it. Moderating our conversation tonight is Jim Falk, president and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth and co-host of the McQuistian program on KERA. Of interest tonight, like Layla, Jim attended high school at a French lycée, Layla in Rabat, Morocco, and Jim in Tunis, Tunisia. Jim holds a master's degree in foreign affairs from the University of Virginia with a specialty in international law and Middle Eastern studies. Jim also serves as honorary consul of Morocco. 
And I'm so thankful for Gems and the Council's longtime partnership with Arts and Letters Live to bring acclaimed authors to Dallas. One final reminder that if you have questions to ask Layla, feel free to type those into the chat field at any time. As soon as you think of them, and the earlier, the better. Thanks again for joining us, and I'll turn it on over now to Jim. Carolyn, thank you so much. And it is really, Layla, I'm so excited. I've been looking forward to this evening for several months. And welcome, welcome to Virtual Dallas and to Arts and Letters Live. Thank you so much. It's a delight to be here. So I, I think you were originally planned to come here several months ago. And of course, your book was to be published earlier, like so many people, and have had their books delayed because I think everyone hoped that the pandemic would end earlier and we still don't know what's going to happen. What has it been like for you to go through this process? Because I, I know you're a people person and you enjoy going to bookstores and supporting independent books. What's it been like? Well, I spent a lot of time on computers and with different lights and different tech equipment. And I, so I've become quite a pro at this in the last few months. I think, you know, for me, it was just, it has made the publication process um, unusual because typically I write the book, it comes out, I immediately go and tour with it. And this, this book, I turned in the copy edits, I think at the end of 2019. And so now we find ourselves at the end of 2020 and just about to talk about it. You know, one of the things that uh, why well, I was excited about meeting you is in a sense, um, our backgrounds are a little similar in that I spent my formative years in, in Tunis. And we'll talk about sort of the experience that we both had in, in French lycées. <laughs> uh, but for those who have not had the pleasure of reading your first nonfiction book, C Conditional Citizens, uh, what drove you to write this book at this time? Was there one incident or experience that made you want to write this? Yeah, I, um, I'd been writing nonfiction uh, the entire time that I was uh, writing fiction, but typically with fiction, it's a project that takes, you know, four to five years. So I would sometimes write essays in the short, you know, in, in when I was taking breaks from the novel. But uh, four years ago, I was watching the Democratic National Convention, which I think was held in Philadelphia that year. And a couple from Virginia showed up to uh, speak on behalf of, of the Democratic nominee and to eulogize their son, who was uh, a captain in the United States Army and had died uh, in the line of fire. And um, th that couple was from originally from Pakistan, and they were worried because had the Muslim ban been in place, they felt that they, their lives would not have been possible, certainly not their children's lives. Um, and so it was this really kind of an electrifying moment. I remember that the next day, the New York Times had a headline that said, uh, Mr. Khan gives a lesson on citizenship. Uh, to Trump. So it was it was just this very special moment and it was followed by essentially a week of attacks that that called into question Mr. Khan's patriotism and said that um, he was, uh, you know, a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, that he didn't allow, allow his wife to speak, and even, and much more worryingly, that his son had joined the army for the specific purpose of being a sort of a stealth jihadist. So it was a pretty ugly week, and it really made me realize that there is a strange dynamic at play 
for many uh, citizens of the United States who are originally from, who have a national origin from outside the US, where there is a dynamic where they are expected to demonstrate their gratitude and their loyalty and their love for the country, but at the same time, they're supposed to be silent about anything else. So just the act of criticizing the Republican nominee was perceived as being ungrateful and disloyal. And I was that struck me as a kind of a form of citizenship that I call conditional citizenship. Like you're American, but only if you're quiet about about certain things. And so I wrote a series of essays actually about this. And when I finished uh, working on my previous novel, which was called The Other Americans, uh, I then sat down in earnest and wrote the nonfiction book. And you know. I when you define what a conditional citizen is, do you find that people are uncomfortable or perhaps disagree with you that it even exists? Not at all, actually. Uh, I think they might disagree with the manifestations and in the way that I talk about it in the book, but I think that it's not a, a very complicated concept. The example that I gave of it right now is more I would say intangible, right? It's kind of like getting comments or being told go back to your country, even if you're born here, as we saw recently with some Congresswomen. Those I would say are just um, forms of speech. So those I would say are fall under just uncomfortable moments for people. But there are also very tangible ways in which citizenship is experienced and it's not experienced the same by people of different racial backgrounds, different genders, different national origins or different religions. So one way to gauge this is to think back about each time you come face to face with a representative of the state, be it a police officer or a border agent or uh, uh, even uh, somebody who's running a public um, school. Like, and you look at how those encounters um, are affected by race. And we know from a wealth of studies that the likelihood of, for example, a police encounter ending up in violence um, go up tremendously if the person who's who stopped is African-American. So that would be an example of a very tangible way in which citizenship is not secure for a number of people. Well, we even saw that with um, candidate Obama. Yes. I mean, in a sense, yes. what one of the criticisms from his or one of the arguments was, is he truly a citizen of the United States? Yes. And not only that, it was something that that conspiracy theory uh, started w before his. Uh, uh, can you hear me still? Oh, absolutely. Oh, OK. I, it, it was <laughs> Uh, that conspiracy theory predated his run for presidency and outlasted it, meaning that we have had that conspiracy theory for 10 years and it didn't matter how much he sought to uh, prove his citizenship, it was always in question and it was put up in question by a very specific uh, type of individual. And so it's kind of like, it's a situation in which these people are substituting themselves for agents of the state and saying, show us your paper, prove to us that you're American. So that would be a great example of that. You know, as you point out, often people uh, acquire their citizenship by accident. And in a sense, that happened to you. You were an exchange student. Tell us a little bit about, about your own journey, because it's so interesting. And it also, I think, underscores the importance 
of having international students in American universities. Oh, oh yes, of course. Yes. I mean, citizenship is a complete uh, lottery. Nobody chooses where they're born or what part of the world they're from, right? And so you could be born in, say, for example, North Korea, and that could determine the kind of human rights that you have access to, right? So Because you can't leave the country, so you have no freedom of movement. Or you can uh, be born in, say, uh, 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 Finland and have access to social rights like free healthcare or free education that other people don't have access to. Or you can be born right here in the United States and be protected by the Bill of Rights and by the Constitution. And as it happened, I was born in Morocco, which is a constitutional monarchy. So technically, I would I was a subject uh, of <laughs> of the king. Of his majesty, right? Yes. <laughs> And uh, in the early 1990s, I, um, the early to mid 1990s, I came to the United States as a foreign student. So I was on an F1 visa. And my intention was to complete my PhD and return home to Morocco, where I hope to work as a college professor. But in between, you know, after years of being in, in, in this PhD program, I met an American, we ended up getting married, and I ended up staying here and becoming a permanent resident and later a citizen myself. So in my situation, this the, the sort of naturalized citizenship is different because it is a conscious choice rather than just um, sort of un, sort of just a lottery of birth. It's more of a of a choice. And for me, even though it happened by chance, I didn't intend on being an immigrant. It just was something that happened. It was nonetheless a choice that I took very seriously because I think that. Uh, it seemed to me uh, that it was kind of like a relationship I was entering into, and I had to take it very seriously. What did what did the oath of citizenship mean, and was I prepared to sort of live it fully? Um, and and so that's what you know. That's how the book, in fact, opens is with the day um, of my citizenship ceremony. Now tell us about what your emotions were on that day and where it took place, because yes. that's, that's important in itself. <laughs> Yeah, so it was a very emotional and frankly, a very moving day. So picture, if you will, 3,000 people uh, gathered together in a windowless hangar at the Pomona Fairplex, which is this massive facility here in L.A. County. And this is where every year the Los Angeles County Fair is held. So just to give you an idea of the, the, the scale of it, so children can come up, come out and like pet goats and ride horses and eat churros. It's kind of like a place of fun. Um, and uh, so, so we were all gathered there and a judge came and gave us a speech about the, the sort of... Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. Uh, he really delivered a homily about citizenship and about the the sort of rights and responsibilities that awaited us. And then we were uh, we 
we were sworn in. And it was very moving because looking around the room, you could see people from every nationality. In fact, and I don't remember the number, but they told us however many nationalities there were. And it was, you know, 50 or 60, you know, that day, people from all over the world. And they were all sworn in with this oath. And it was it was very moving because it makes you feel that there is a principle that sort of binds people that transcends whatever differences that they may have. Um, and as I write in the book, it was only years later as I was researching the Pomona Fairplex, which is the site where we were all sworn in because I was looking to find how big it was. It's 487 acres. <laughs> but as I was, I was researching the size of it, and that is how I discovered that it had been used as an assembly center for Japanese Americans uh, in the 1940s. So if you were uh, Japanese or Japanese American in Southern California, you had to report there in 1942 be processed there, and then they were put on trains to uh, go to an internment camp um, in Wyoming. And when I discovered that, I was I got whiplash because it was it really made it very real to me that the same government that can sort of embrace people of all backgrounds and kind of administer this oath and and talk about the American family had chosen for as the site of this very moving uh, uh, ceremony, a place that had this, this extremely ugly history that is in fact a history of stripping people of their rights under the constitution. They lost their freedom of movement. Um, they basically lost their properties and they were put in, in, in detention camps, in concentration camps. Uh, and there were no markers of that at the place where we were sworn in. So it was kind of a form of erasure. Uh, and so in the book, I talk about how that form of erasure is kind of it's a it's a way to create a national identity. So to sort of trace an arc around national identity with while leaving out sort of um, you know uh, less savory uh, moments of history out of it. And we're still addressing that now, as we're seeing concerning the Civil War monuments and how to handle that part of our history and right. and slavery. Um, you know, one of the things that I also really got from your book, and we should remind our viewers that they can ask questions throughout our discussion, is that you you talk about your personal experiences in each essay, but you also really go into the history. And I want to believe that our history goes like this in progress and it's linear. And just as you mentioned the internment, when you look at immigration, we really have a, a lot of pockmarks in our history, don't we? Yeah, and one of the things that uh, writing this book has taught me is that we often think about uh, the journey from 1776, if you will, to, to right now, or from even from 1492 to right now, and think of it as kind of something that has a, a very linear progression. Um, and what I really came to realize is that there was no linear progression, that there were moments of progress, and oftentimes they were followed by moments of, of, of uh, uh, sort of efforts at dismantling the gains that had been made. And this kind of dynamic of kind of giving and taking 
and of um, moving forward with one step, moving back. It, it really characterizes the history of the country. And that's also true of its uh, immigration history. So we all hear con constantly that, you know, the United States is a nation of immigrants. And certainly when you look at the, the racial diversity of the country, the, the diversity in national origins, it is one of the more diverse uh, countries in the world. But historically, its immigration laws have always been very tightly controlled and have very purposefully um, excluded non-white people. So, for example, uh, the, the Chinese Exclusion Act, which basically barred Chinese uh, workers from coming to the United States, uh, starting in 1882, was followed by a series of laws that sought to keep out uh, various um, Asians from settling, for coming to the U.S. and settling here. And other, other laws have also been passed in that sense to keep out various non-whites from Africa. From but even, it's not just non-whites, it's also happened to the Irish and the Italians. Yeah, well, yes, yes. So what's, what's happened is it, it happened to non-whites and it happened to people who were considered insufficiently white. And by this, I mean that the boundaries of who counted as white were extremely, um, they were policed. And so uh, Southern Italians, for example, they were barred at one point from coming here just through, through various legislation, pieces of legislation. And so when we say that we are a nation of immigrants, it's important to think about that immigration history, which traditionally has not favored everyone. It, it has favored some groups and has not treated everyone equally. And it's also important to understand that it's not only a nation of immigrants, there were people here before, and there were also people who were brought here uh, as enslaved uh, people. And so um, even, I, I think that right now we are in a moment of sort of, uh, uh, shrinking of immigration. So we have periods when immigration expands, and this happened, for example, in 1990 under George H.W. Bush, where uh, family reunion laws were relaxed and people could bring in family members here. And this was under a Republican administration, the borders of the country. And we've seen the various bans that have been put in place in the last four years. Um, and certainly it has increased in a sense with the Trump administration. But as you point out in your book, Conditional Citizens, a lot of this started earlier. And I was I'd forgotten just the role that, say, President Clinton had, had played in not building a wall, but building a fence. Yeah. And, well, so and this is President yeah. Obama as well. Yes. Um, yeah. Yes, I think that both parties, this is one of the things that I think is really troubling about how we discuss immigration in the US is that there's this sort of real uh, partisan way of looking at it as if the one party is responsible for everything terrible that happens with immigration and one party is blameless. And that's just not, um, it's just not borne by the facts. Um, and, and for example, with the wall, I mean, there have been various forms of walls and fencing that have gone up, and they did, as you say, start with Bill Clinton. They were continued by George W. Bush and continued by Obama. And the only reason that that it became such a such a um, national issue is because of the language 
the very blunt language that Donald Trump used when he said, build that wall, it sort of crystallizes the issue in a way. He, personal, he personalized yeah. it. Yeah, it makes it it makes it it makes it more concrete. Uh, <laughs> no pun intended. And so um, and so I think that's why uh, people are starting to realize that there's this massive spending on a wall and that it's. Um, yeah, and sadly that you know George W. Bush and Ted Kennedy were so close to getting a comprehensive immigration bill. And let's hope that one of these days it will happen because it's certainly certainly needed. Let's talk about your connection to Texas. Um, we're about what I guess eight or nine hours away from Marfa, and you spent what you went there twice. Twice, uh, yes, yes. Tell us about that. Well, I was very fortunate to uh, go to a writing retreat uh, in Marfa. I was working on uh, The Moor's Account, which is a historical novel uh, that uh, follows this enslaved man from Morocco who arrives in uh, what is now Florida um, in 1528. And I was, got, I was still working on the manuscript and I was sent to Marfa, uh, I was invited to Marfa. And when I was driving from uh, El Paso to Marfa on Interstate 10, I was stopped and it was this one of those checkpoints. It's a border checkpoint. We were nowhere near the border with Mexico, but there was a checkpoint. It was these burly guys <laughs> with uh, uniforms and, you know, the, the dogs, the German shepherds, all these weapons. And it looked pretty serious. And the uh, the border patrol agent asked us, you know, are you U.S. citizens, my friends and I? And, you know, we said yes. And he let us through. And I became, you know, immediately intrigued. You know, what is this border checkpoint and, and how many of them are there? And I discovered that, in fact, um, there's well, the, the website of Customs and Border Protection lists 134 of these checkpoints in the U.S. And in fact, there may be more once you factor in move in roving checkpoints. These are just the permanent ones. And um, I was really surprised to discover that uh, what counts as the border in the U.S. is not the physical border between the U.S. and Mexico or the U.S. and Canada, but any um, any area that is within 100 miles of that border, be it the, on the ocean, on land, or on Great Lakes. And so what this means, in effect, is that uh, 200 million Americans live in what is the border zone, and uh, they can technically face border checkpoints at any, any moment, Border Patrol could decide to set up a checkpoint and they would then be subjected to these checks. And it goes like this. They ask, who are you, a, are you a U.S. citizen? Now, if you're like any of us, you don't go around carrying a birth certificate or a passport. You just have your driver's license. And that is not proof of citizenship. And you're not required to carry a driver's license. No, not, not either. Exactly. And so then the, what this means is that the Border Patrol agent has a great deal of discretion. They can decide just based on how you look or how you sound or how you act, where they believe you when you say yes, or they don't believe you, in which case you're going to get stopped there and you're going to be asked to, to provide proof. Uh, and so every year, U.S. citizens get caught up in this and they end up in immigration detention. Um, so it's, it's really something that uh, ought to make, me, make people really consider how much 
they think that they have freedom of movement within their country if there are all of these checkpoints essentially making your, your movement more complicated than it needs to be. We have a, a question from our audience. Uh, can you touch on your thoughts and emotions when President Trump conducted the citizenship ceremony at the White House during the convention? Uh, thank you, Kirsten, for that question. Yes, I I, uh, <laughs> I did not watch the Republican National Convention, but the next day I did, the day after that ceremony, I did read about it on uh, PBS and I watched the entire video. I have to say I was uh, stunned that uh, the president who made his name on uh, what he called the Muslim ban, recalled that in 2015, when he first appeared on the national stage and announced that he was going to run for the presidency, one of his policy promises was to build the wall. And the other one was that he was going to have a complete and total shutdown of Muslims in the United States. And so what he ended up delivering is um, two bans, one that bans uh, a bunch of Muslim countries and the other one that bans a bunch of African and Asian countries. And when I saw that he used the White House as kind of a prop for a citizenship ceremony when he has his entire uh, platform is around restricting immigration. And of course, they, he, will, he will be the first to say that he's for legal, that it's illegal immigration that he's against. Nevertheless, the fact that he used the, the White House as a prop to have these five people sworn in, five naturalized citizens sworn in, one of whom, by the way, was originally born in Sudan. Uh, and so this was one of the countries that he was trying to, to ban. So it just seemed to me incredible that he had this ceremony. And I wondered, to be honest with you, whether the people who voted for him, his supporters, could notice the contradiction between a man who tells them that he's going to control immigration and then turns around and has a, a swearing-in ceremony for people, for five people, one of whom would have been banned by his own laws. So it's uh, it was no shortage of uh, contradiction, but he has... He has a track record of contradictions that he somehow manages to uh, to um, elude. Uh, before I go with another question, let me uh, read what Salim has said. As of today, there is a marker at the Pomona Fairplex stating, may such injustice and suffering never recur. So it's yes. nice to see that there is recognition. and Right. And I, I, I do talk about that in the book. That actually, that plaque happened as a result of advocacy by Japanese Americans because they did not want what happened to them to be forgotten. And they it took lobbying by, by Japanese Americans to the city council to actually make sure that that plaque got which, of course, is the same thing you're seeing with some of the monuments going back exactly, to Monticello, exactly. and so forth. Yeah, so, I, I think if I, just, if I may just make this point, one of the things that this raises for me, both as a novelist and as a nonfiction writer, is how we approach history as an argument. Like history is something that people continually debate, like who, how are we how are we remembering these events in, in the past? Who is a hero? Who is a villain? You know, what exactly happened? And that debate doesn't stop. I'm sure that 30 years from now, people will be debating what is happening here and how we remember it. Let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, in your book, 
especially conditional citizens, you bear your soul. You, you, you bear your soul. We learn a lot about your background. We learn about your family. Was that difficult for you? Oh, it was excruciating. And how far did you go? And was it? <laughs> I mean, how, what what made you go do this? Because you didn't. This could have just been essays from a historical standpoint. You didn't need to really talk as much about yourself. So, tell us about that decision. I think it's because the work demanded it. I think that it's important when a reader approaches a piece of work uh, to understand the perspective that a person brings to it. This is not a dry or sort of like academic expose of, about history. This is my specific perspective about my experience of citizenship and what I've seen and what, how it is similar to the experiences of other conditional citizens. And in order to make that point, it was necessary for me to sort of go into my own uh, private experiences in the book. It's not something that I wanted to do, believe me. I, I, it's something, I'm an intensely private person. And so this was uh, quite difficult, but I felt that the work demanded it and that in order to be able to discuss these issues with honesty, that I needed to be able to include that personal aspect um, in the essays. Layla, I have a lot of Moroccan friends that are listening to this uh, in Dallas. Uh, and so I, I really want to talk a little bit about your experience in Rabat in language, because as we talked about this yesterday, when you and I first met, we both had French teachers in <laughs> high school. And I, I mentioned to you that my first Arabic classes were taught by very tiny white nuns, French nuns. And now when I look back on it, how odd it is to have French nuns teaching me Arabic. What is the impact of you know, part of the colonial experience when you were in high school, uh, the kingdom was already independent? Right. <laughs> 1956. I am old, but not that old. <laughs> and I want to go back and talk about your mother's experience, but your your own about you know going to high school in French and then going out on the streets and speaking Arabic. What does that say still about the power of colonialism? I mean, I think it means that it's not it's it's not it's just not. the physical presence of a foreign power in your country that constitutes colonialism. Colonialism is also a system. And it's an economic system as much as anything else. And right now, Morocco, of course, is independent, but it has economic ties. It has cultural ties. It has uh, 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 leadership ties with France that have persisted long after uh, independence. Um, and one of the things that uh, French colonial uh, presence or colonialism brought to Morocco is the sort of, uh, they brought their language with them and they disrupted and essentially remade uh, Moroccan educational system in such a way that French began to be taught in, in French schools. And the intention was not to, you know, educate people. The intention was to create a clerk class of people who could basically participate in French administration. Mm -hmm. And so past a certain point, typically high school, they made it actually extremely difficult to reach even the higher levels of high school and college. 
really what they wanted were people who could read and write and basically help fill out forms and basically just run administrations. That was the goal. Um, and it was only after independence and the right and the rise of what were called uh, uh, independent schools where Arabic really uh, was taught at those kind of a, in a way to compete with French. And uh, so after they left, that disruption did not stop. And for example, with since I'm a writer, I have to bring up sort of what's happened with books. With the book market, I remember when I was a little girl, a lot of the books that you could find if you went into a bookstore and you wanted like a comic book or like a, you know, the, the sort of the chapter books or the books for young readers, a lot of that was dominated by uh, French books. And so there is something that happens to a formerly colonized person right? Where you exist in a kind of duality, first of all, and, and I think it's a double duality, really, because Arabic is in, in a state of what's called diglossia. There's the high form and the low form, the colloquial form. And at home, you speak colloquial Arabic, right? That would be Moroccan Arabic. But when you go to school, you're taking classes either in French or you're taking classes in standard Arabic. Um, and then so there's there's you're constantly code switching between languages, um, depending on the situation, which I suppose is fine. The problem is that when you look at how those languages operate, they're not operating at uh, an equal level. You have a language that is used to signal power. So for example, if you go on a job interview at a bank or uh, or like um, uh, a business position or, you know, then you, the interview is conducted in French. But if you go for, for other things, then it's Arabic. So there's constantly this, this sort of twinning of French with power. And it's so it's not a neutral relationship between French and Arabic. And when I was growing up, it wasn't something it was that was how things were. It wasn't something that you question as a young child or even as a teenager. Um, I spoke French because my parents had sent me to a, a French primary school where, by the way, I was taught by nuns as well. <laughs> but um, but in middle school and, and high school, I went to a public school and it was fine. And um, it, it was not something that you really questioned. It was something that I started to really resent, frankly, when I got older and I was a teenager and, and a college student. That's when I had kind of like this reaction where I, I felt that this was a language that had been imposed on me. I didn't choose it. And it was a language that was constantly being used to signal power within Moroccan society. So it was never it was never a neutral language. And it's changing now too, because when I go back to Tunis or to Casablanca, you're seeing, you know, Arabic more as the language in business. And I think in time that will change. Right. Tell us about your mother. Because there again, that is just a striking thing that happened with her. I mean, one day she's Catholic, brought up in a Catholic orphanage. And then tell us what ha what happened upon independence. Well, my mother is an orphan, and so she doesn't really know uh, how she um, ended up in a in a French orphanage. And so the French were running a series of these orphanages around the country, and that is how she grew up. And so they raised everybody with 
the the belief that Morocco was going to continue under French colonial rule for I don't know for forever I guess and then of course independence happened and disrupted their plans and so all of a sudden the nuns were worried uh, that they were they were going to be found to be teaching you know uh, a Catholicism and so then they they allowed the girls to. Uh, to to basically practice their own religion. So it was that kind of duality where Christianity was also uh, imposed and then then later withdrawn. And it was kind of like this, you know, here's this religion. Oh, no, we're going to take it back. You know what I mean? And so whiplash. It was, yeah, it was exactly whiplash. And she was young when this happened, but it was something that um, I think, you know, obviously when it happens to you as a child, it leaves a mark on you. And there is this sense, I remember when I was growing up, it actually gave me a great deal of familiarity with a lot of sort of like the cosmology of Christianity. A lot of it was familiar uh, just because of the fact that I had French teachers and because I, I heard about her upbringing. So it was never, it was always, you know, they seemed familiar to me, Christians were. Um, and the reverse, of course, is not necessarily true, again. So we have a question from a teacher I know well. She teaches high school in Dallas, Maria Vieira Williams. Good evening, Maria. And she asks, what patterns have you noticed about groups that have suffered permanent discrimination while others have been accepted and rarely discriminated against? Well, that's really interesting. That's a really interesting question. I think that when you look at... Uh, when you look at it just depends because there's so many ways to approach this but since you're uh asking about uh, since you're a school teacher we could approach this from from uh um uh schooling uh if you look at the ways in which public schools depend on kind of zoning and where where the government money is being spent whether it's being spent in in this neighborhood or that neighborhood uh, there's this thing called redlining, right? And where people were not um, necessarily allowed to live in certain neighborhoods. And it created these these uh, disparities in education that have lasted. I think that the the groups that have had the 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 hardest time of it, I would say, are the groups that have been historically, discriminated against the most. And so that would be indigenous people and uh, black people or descendants of enslaved people. For immigrants, depending on their national origins, they're kind of entering the system at a different um, at a different level. They are not carrying with them the burden of that history or the burden of particular expectations. And so I think after a generation or two, it's easier for them to escape that stigmatization and to feel that they are quote unquote um, successful. But I think um, for, for those two groups, I would say it's, it's, it's harder just because of the weight of that history. Let's, let's hear from Sarah Valente. Would you please speak about the concept of conditional citizenship versus that of undocumented citizenship? which Jose Antonio Vargas writes about in his memoir, Dear America. Yeah, so I haven't read his book, but uh, but I'm happy to talk about, about this from that perspective. 
I think uh, when, so the way in which I define con con a conditional citizenship in the book is basically a conditional citizen is someone who does not have access to the same right liberties and protections as other Americans because of arbitrary markers of identity like race, like gender, social class, national origins. And with respect to undocumented people and particularly with children, you have it right now in the country, people who know no other country than the US. Uh, they have come here as children uh, and in some cases as infants and don't have uh, that citizenship. So yes, they are very much conditional citizens. They don't have access to 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 even the paperwork to say that they're citizens. Never mind actually having whether they're 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 having that the same rights as everyone else. So yes, it would apply to them as well. We have about another fifteen minutes, and I want to be sure that people have a chance to hear your voice through your writing. And I wonder if you might read maybe a, a paragraph or two from from both books. Okay. And so, set the stage for it. Yes. So this is um, this is since I've already described the citizenship ceremony, I'll read from what happened almost immediately after. Uh, it's a couple of paragraphs. Nearly 20 years have passed since that summer morning at the Pomona Fairplex. I am no longer a starry-eyed bride, but maturity has its advantages. I can see better now what I had perceived only dimly back then. Being a citizen of the United States, I have thought, meant being an equal member of the American family, a spirited group of people of different races, origins, and creeds bound together by common ideals. As time went by, however, the contradictions between doctrine and reality became harder to ignore. While my life in this country is in most ways happy and fulfilling, it has never been entirely secure or comfortable. Certain facts regularly stand in the way, facts that make of me a conditional citizen. Shortly after taking the oath, I applied for and received an American passport. The blue booklet was at once a tangible proof of my new citizenship and a powerful artifact that gave me the freedom to travel without restriction to more than 150 countries. I made immediate use of it when I flew to Hong Kong in October 2000 to attend the annual meeting of the Association for Computational Linguistics. My husband had decided to tag along, and we spent a few days sightseeing on the island and in the Kowloon Peninsula. Coming back to the U.S., we went through customs at Los Angeles International Airport, both of us relieved not to have to go in separate lines anymore. When we walked up to the counter, the border agent examined both of our passports, then turned to my husband. So, he said, his face breaking into a conspiratorial smile, how many camels did you have to trade in for her? So this is from that book, um, and it just, uh, just to give people a sense of why I used my personal experience, because it, it is used as a way to illustrate what encounters with agents of the state might feel like uh, for different people. And something that a lot of us never really experience. Right, right. So it's, it's just used as an illustration and to kind of give people a sense of that perspective. And mind you, using that, it, that it, frequently in the book, I also acknowledge all of the ways in which I'm really quite privileged, even as an immigrant. I mean, I'm a college-educated uh, uh, individual. I'm a professor at the University of California. I, at no time do I lose 
uh, sight of the fact that I'm actually quite privileged in many ways. And yet there are moments when you have encounters with agents of the state where you kind of notice uh, the difference. And so I, I wanted to write about it. And it may be a paragraph from the other Americans. And if I can tell our viewers, uh, I picked, uh, uh, Carolyn was kind enough to send me a copy of the other Americans. Yeah. And uh, I had a, a moment to read a page and a half and then I got interrupted. And many of you know, I have lots of books I read for the World Affairs Council. But I wrote Carolyn and I said, this is one of the best one and a half pages I've ever read. I cannot wait till next weekend when I can read it. And it, you know, your writing is, is so descriptive and so enjoyable, but especially with the other Americans. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I, I'll just read a uh, two paragraphs. And this is from the point of view of a woman who's lived in the United States. Uh, so this is fiction. This is not me. <laughs> uh, this is from the perspective of a woman who moved here uh, 35 years ago. She has two children and the book opens when her husband is killed in a hit and run uh, accident. And this is before she finds out actually. When we moved to America 35 years ago, many things took me by surprise, like gun shops next to barber shops, freeways that tangled like yarn, people who knocked on your door to talk about Jesus, 20 different kinds of milk at the grocery store, signs that said, don't even think about parking here. I remember pointing them out to Dries. They even have signs that tell you what you can't think. But above all, I was surprised by the talk shows, the way Americans love to confess on television. Men talked about their affairs or addictions or gambling problems. Women talked about their weight or plastic surgeries or the children they had outside marriage. Even teenagers had something to say, mostly about how terrible their parents were and all of it like it was a normal thing. I couldn't stop watching. The television sat on top of the supply cabinet in the back of the donut shop. And while I was washing dishes or mopping floors, I would watch Sally or Donahue, which in those days were on in the middle of the afternoon when the shop was quiet. My brother had told me that watching television would help me improve my English. And I will say I learned a lot of new words like paternity tests and artificial insemination and AIDS epidemic. But my trouble was pronunciation how easy it was to say tree when I meant three or utter when I meant other. I needed a lot of practice. In Casablanca, I had my two sisters, three uncles and eight cousins. But here in California, my brother was the only family I had and he lived 130 miles away. I hadn't realized how far that was until we went from seeing him every day to seeing him only once a month and sometimes not even that often. For me, that was the hardest thing about living in America being so far away, it was like being orphaned. Yeah, I think now people know why I enjoyed your writing so much and I need to order some more books tonight. <laughs> you write, I'm an American who doesn't support US, US exceptionalism or military occupations. Layla, knowing how careful you are with your words, why did you put these two together in one sentence? It really surprised me. It, did, it, did it surprise you? It did. Oh, because I think that the two are, um, the reason that I think the two of them are, are connected is I think that uh, there is a belief that uh, in getting involved in these sort of military uh, interventions that the United States is 
spreading democracy and uh, helping other countries achieve their freedoms, just as the US gained its independence from from England and and basically threw off the the <laughs> the the the, the, um, the foreign power and so so then they got their independence and so now they're they're going to go into these other countries and help them gain their independence and liberate them and I so I do think that there is a connection in that sense and I think it is something that the United States tells itself in order to not feel like it's an occupying power when in fact it is an occupying power. I think that's interesting because in a sense that's not, if you'd ask someone 10 years, well, I shouldn't say 10 years, and that's scary, 25 years ago, what American exceptionalism meant, there wouldn't have been that connection, I don't think, to, to the military. Well, uh, this was before, don't forget, we've had a war in Afghanistan that's been going on for 20 years. Well, that's why I said 25 yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, Andrea Kirsten Coleman asked, and you do talk about this in a sense. The question is, as someone from Africa, do you as someone from Africa, do you feel an obligation to use your voice to advocate for the continent? Wow, the continent. That is a you, big... have, you have enough of an issue just advocating <laughs> for Moroccans and Arabs and Muslims. Well, I, I do, but I will say, however, that, that I identify as African. I think Africa runs in my uh, blood and 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 in my hair, <laughs> you can see it. Um, I do, I do, I am interested in what happens in Africa, and I I do write about it when I feel that I have something to contribute that is uh, above and beyond just kind of like being an observer, sort of an armchair observer. If I feel like there's an issue that I'm particularly suited to speak about, then I will. So to give you an example, when the Trump administration began um, implementing what I call the Africa ban, which is, which is the second iteration of the travel ban, and it targeted a number of African countries, including Nigeria, which is, you know, it's just a massive country with a massive number of people. And, and um, so to ban them is in effect banning a third of the population of, of Africa. So in that sense, yes, I wrote a piece for the nation about it because I felt that as an immigrant, it was something that I could speak to, meaning the immigration ban from Africa because I'm an immigrant and I'm from Africa. But if it is about something a bit you know, that is kind of outside of my lane, I have to be careful because I know that there are people who are more, um, have more expertise in different, in whatever their fields are. So of course, you know, I have to cede <laughs> to them. So talking about lanes, this is a, a very wide lane, but it's a, it's a good question. And I think it's something we all need to think about. And this comes from Anka Tursu. As of today, the U.S. government cannot locate the parents of 545 children it separated from their parents at the border. How can we help these children? And how do we avoid complicity with this cruel act? Uh, first, I want to say that this is one of those issues that uh, literally keeps me up at night. I have insomnia, so I have hours to think about some of this stuff. And, and uh, it's just a heinous crime and a form of mass kidnapping that has been um, visited on these poor children. There are a number of ways in which you can get involved. Uh, first, you should know that the, the reason that we even know uh, about the names and the specific uh, uh, details about a lot of these 
kids is because of a lawyer named Lee Gallant who works for the ACLU, and the ACLU has been suing, uh, uh, you know, the government about this and has been helping them to track, to try and track and find out where the parents are. And that's how we got that figure. Those were the ones that they couldn't locate. So contributing to the ACLU, you are actually helping an organization, a nonpartisan organization that that is, is essentially trying to protect the rights of everyone in the US, whether they are a citizen or not, and whether they're undocumented or not. Another thing you can do is there are two organizations and one of them is actually in Texas. Uh, one is called the Texas Civil Rights Project. Uh, and uh, they provide legal help for undocumented people. They were also uh, involved in some of these, trying to bring attention to the issue of um, family separation. And the last one is an organization called Raices, which I'm sure you've heard about. Um, and is it might also be in Texas, come to think of it. Um, but it's called Raices, R-A-I-C-E-S. So those are three that you can get involved in. Uh, the other thing that you can do is call your uh, representative. I think that people really underestimate how much just constantly advocating with their member of Congress about something like this can have the power to make a difference. Uh, you are not powerless. Each of us has a certain amount of power and we have to find where our talents and our powers are and use them. And I, I do think that there, 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 there are things that, that we could do. The only reason they even stopped family separation is because of the howls of people, you know, raising hell about what happened. If people hadn't said anything, they would still be doing it. So, so likewise, you know, with these children to try and help and locate their parents, we just have to keep raising hell. And the images that were brought to us by, by the media. We have just a, another few minutes and we've only really touched on some of the essays, but one was about poverty. And we wanna believe in the United States that coming to the United States is an opportunity and that everyone, each generation will have a better life. And yet you really examine some of the root causes for the inequality that we're facing in our country. And indeed, you weren't quite a starving graduate student, but it was, you know, a little tough <laughs> times. So talk with us as we have another two minutes or so about the American dream and does it still exist? And if not, how do we get it back? I think, well, first of all, I think it's a very seductive idea. And I think that the United States does a phenomenal job of propagating that idea through uh, its movies and, and, and through its uh, television shows, radio shows, all of that. This idea that no matter where you come from, if you work, you can, you, you can make it in the United States. Um, and when I came to the U.S., so I, I was born and raised in a working class family. But when I came to the U.S., I was a graduate student and I had to work to support myself. Um, and I was a very low paid <laughs> graduate student. And I, it, was, it was very lean years, but it was a very interesting kind of poverty because it was a poverty that was the graduate student poverty, which isn't the same thing as parental poverty or having children that are dependent on you and being on that income. So it was a different um, experience, but it was something those years where uh, I was living as a graduate student in this sort of apartment complex uh, for people with very limited means um, in, in Koreatown in LA really gave me um, 
perspective on how other people who were not graduate students were experiencing their poverty. And one of the things I think that the reason that I say that the American dream is so seductive is that so many people believe it unquestioningly, even when the data tells us otherwise. So, for example, in the U.S., social mobility, meaning your ability to go from one social class to uh, the next, is actually determined by the income of your parents. Uh, so it's it's something that is determined by the zip code in which you live. Those things have far more of an effect on your earning power than just your individual um, efforts. And social mobility in the United States is actually uh, slower than in other countries like Finland or even in Canada. And that's not something that people necessarily believe because what they see are the, the fantastic success stories the stories of, for example, the CEO of Google or the co-founder of Google, you know, these are people who are immigrants or the founder of, of Tesla. These are all immigrants and they are now fabulously wealthy. And so the idea is anybody can do it. In reality, you know, those are very specific cases. Again, all three, for example, are, are engineers and, 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 you know, they, they came with a particular um, level of education. So it's just very different and, and, and they, can, they are really more exceptions than they are the rule. As I said, social mobility is, is the United States is a mid-range country with respect to social mobility. So with one minute left, your last chapter is titled, Do Not Despair of This Country. In one minute, tell me why I should go to bed tonight feeling really optimistic <laughs> about the future. I'm telling my grandchildren. Well, I, I, already told you, I already told you I have insomnia, so I, <laughs> so I do lie awake at night a lot. But the reason that I said do not despair of this country is because it's very easy to look around at all of the sort of serious issues that I talk about in, in this book of essays, like, you know, poverty and racism and exclusion and to feel despair. But it's important not to, and especially it's important not to give in to it because despair means apathy and lack of action. And it requires nothing of us. It actually, in fact, requires that we give up and do nothing. Um, and for me, when I think back like to the history and to the people who came before us, I have to tell myself, do I really deserve to feel despair when people like Frederick Douglass didn't feel despair? And that's who said, do not despair of this country. So if people could survive something like that and struggle for a better better country, then so can we all. I think that's a wonderful note to close this, this evening. I expected to enjoy this conversation. I even enjoyed it so much more, and I'm sure our viewers did too. Leila Lalami, thank you so much, Mabrook, Masalama. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for Good having night, me. Everyone. Bye, everyone. Thanks to Jim and to Layla for such an insightful conversation. Copies of Conditional Citizens are available for purchase online at shopdma.org. They include a signed book plate and will be shipped directly to you at home. Book sales benefit the DMA, and our members receive a 10% discount on purchases. So now's the perfect moment to think about buying gifts for all the book lovers on your holiday gift list. We have many for sale on the website. Arts and Letters Live has several exciting events coming up. On October 27th, rising literary star Brian Washington talks with author Kylie Reed about his new novel, Memorial, that is garnering so many buzzworthy reviews, it'll make your head spin. Then on November 12th, we'll feature Anthony Horowitz talking about Moonflower Murders. 
his masterfully suspenseful sequel to the worldwide bestseller Magpie Murders. Time Magazine calls Horowitz's books catnip for classic mystery lovers. He's also the award-winning creator and screenwriter of Midsummer Murders and Foil's War on PBS. No matter whether you want to escape the latest news cycle or dive deep into current issues that matter, we hope you'll find events on our schedule that resonate with you right now. Visit dma.org ALL to get the latest updates, sign up to receive our emails, and you can also join our new Arts and Letters Live group on Facebook to stay connected. Finally, I'd like to thank all Arts and Letters Live season supporters, the K. Caterula Endowment for the Literary and Performing Arts, and the McGee Foundation Arts and Letters Live Endowment Fund at the DMA. Major support is provided by the Hirsch Foundation. The Fairmount Hotel Dallas is the exclusive hotel partner for the 2020 Arts and Letters Live series, and promotional support is provided by KERA. Special thanks to the Lyceum Agency and the DMA's audiovisual team for their help making tonight's event possible. And to our promotional partners, World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, Friends of the Dallas Public Library, Human Rights Initiative of Texas, and the Dallas Office of Welcoming Communities and Immigrant Affairs. Many thanks to all of you for joining us. Stay well, and we hope to see you again soon. 